and welcome to The Bunker. My name is Marie LeConte. If you're a long-time listener of our podcast, you may know that I'm 31 years old and I do not have a pension. I have been shouted at by my friends, my family and strangers on the internet about it, but it didn't help. I simply never got round to doing it. If I'm honest, I also feel like my generation will get shafted in one way or another once we get older, so there's little point in being financially responsible right now. This may sound bleak, but I think I'm just being realistic. When was the last time something went right for millennials? Still, I'm open to be convinced, and I hope that today's guest may be able to change my mind. Hello to Dr. Haley James, a senior research fellow in the Centre for Personal Financial Wellbeing at Aston University. Hi. Hi, thanks for inviting me on. Thanks for coming. So your LinkedIn says that you're interested in all aspects of how we experience finance and financial well-being in our everyday lives. Money is obviously something that British people usually hate discussing. So how did you decide to specialise in this? Okay, that's a good question. Um, I think it was a bit of a random journey. I guess it was really because of the stark difference in how we talk about finance generally and how we actually do it in our everyday lives. Hmm. Finance tends to be portrayed as this kind of objective thing that happens out there somewhere. And that's often reinforced by the kind of industry and policy systems that we engage with. When actually finance is something that's deeply embedded in our social and cultural worlds, it's meaningful because it's so connected to who we are and what we do. So that's probably part of the reason it's difficult to talk about. But equally, many people have a feeling that they aren't doing it right. They avoid talking about it. When my perspective is, In many cases, it's the systems that aren't right because they don't fit the reality of how we actually do finance. Mm, That makes a lot of sense. And so you did your doctoral research on the impact automatic enrolment into workplace pensions has on individual decision making. Could you tell me a bit about what you found? Sure. So I started the research in 2015, which was three years after the implementation of automatic enrolment started. So we had some data about what was happening, but we didn't really know much about what people were thinking after being automatically enrolled. Automatic enrolment was primarily into defined contribution pensions, where what you get at the end is really dependent on the contributions you put in and investment gains over the life of the pension. So you know, it was really important to understand more about what people were thinking, what they would do next. Mm. In my research, I talked to people who'd done different things. So people who'd done nothing and stayed just contributing at the minimum levels, in some ways, what was expected. Also, those who decided to pay an additional amount, usually to obtain some form of additional matching from their employer, and also those who had decided to opt out altogether. What I found was that there were very different approaches to pension saving, and sometimes they didn't quite match up to what we'd expect. So, for example, amongst the people who did nothing, I found that some were actively choosing not to engage with pension saving because they had other priorities. So it wasn't a kind of procrastination bias. It was actually like an active choice. Hmm. A lot of this group were, were young adults who felt that they needed to establish themselves as what they termed real adults before they could think about or dedicate resources to a pension. It wasn't about affording it. It was actually about, you know, the social and cultural understandings of what it means to be an adult and what it means to save for a pension. So I don't think that approach is really irrational. I think it makes a lot of sense for the situations a lot of young adults find themselves in. But my concern here was that the experience of automatic enrolment sometimes pushed pensions further down their list, as in I'm doing something for now and that's enough. And maybe they would be in that situation for longer than if they weren't automatically enrolled to start with. Hmm. 
I, I slightly worry as someone who, again, does not have a pension. I'm like, I actually, that that resonates quite a lot. The whole, well, I'm not, I'm not a real adult yet anyway, but then that's probably an entire different episode, I think, of, you know, when you get to feel like an adult, especially when the economy is stacked against you. But um, yeah, no, so it, it, you know, another cheerful topic. So the Centre for Future Studies has forecast that the state pension age will be raised to 69 in 2041. Mm, yeah. There seems to be little time to enjoy later life. So is this the reason why millennials are opting out of pensions? Well, one of the things I found in my study was that pension decisions were very rarely connected to any idea of what later life would be like. That totally goes against a lot of like conventional wisdom, which says, you know, planning or thinking about retirement and later life will lead to more pension saving. Mm. I'm not sure if you saw a few years ago, there was an Aviva advert where they use prosthetics to give younger people an experience of later life. And at the end of the advert, they all went, oh, yeah, I'll definitely save into my pension now. Oh, yeah. Well, what I found was like the complete reverse of that, basically, that mm. people who had enough room to engage with pensions, and I mean in terms of financial resources, but also having the kind of brain space to think about it, were then able to start thinking about what later life might be like for them. So the kind of opposite causal effect, really. Mm. Having said that, when I specifically asked people about what they thought their later life would be like, there was pervasive ageism across the board. People thought ageing generally and later life specifically was something scary. Lots of people sought to avoid the topic by making jokes about it. And there were really very few models available for thinking about later life as something positive or something to look forward to. So I don't think the raising of a state pension age does affect pension saving directly in that way. But I do think it is probably having a more indirect effect on people thinking that pensions are not something they have control over or not something they have ownership of generally. Mm, no, that's a very good point. And I think that, see, not, not to make myself here the voice of literally all millennials, but again, <laughs> I do think that as a generation, we've had so little control over so many important aspects of our lives that it does feel a bit that, you know, why should pensions be any different? Because again, we have control over nothing anyway. But yeah, so actually on, 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 which, on which note, I think, so um, there's now many industries using zero-hour contract workers or freelancers. What effect does insecure working contracts have on people's attitude to pensions? Because I know I'm self-employed and that's also probably why I feel the way I do. Yeah, I mean, absolutely it's got something to do with it. And for full disclosure, I have to admit, for a long time, I've been working on insecure academic contracts and was in basically the same boat. Mm. I think the whole idea of pension is linked to stable employment, and that's practically in terms of the way they're administered by employers, but also in terms of the cultural models of how we think about pensions. So lots of people, even if they are in a stable job that offers a good pension, they don't engage with them because they aren't thinking about staying in that job for a long time. And having lots of small pension pots to manage seems like too much of a burden. And, and they're right. There isn't really an easy way to handle small pots at the moment, mm. but there is work going on to resolve that. But then, you know, for those who don't have easy access to workplace pensions, I think, you know, there's something like 10 million people who were excluded from automatic enrolment on the basis of income or age criteria or by being self-employed mm. the effort that's required to find out you know what's good and what you should be what you need from a pension and establish some sort of solution for yourself is huge so I think it's really no wonder people don't get around to doing it themselves well that makes me feel better about myself and my questionable choices thank you <laughs> so is it actually just us millennials who are becoming dissatisfied with pensions or you know are, are people sort of younger and older than us deciding to do the same and kind of ditch them and not think about them 
Mm. Well, I think there's a lot of people of all age groups who are dissatisfied with pensions. We often hearken back to like a golden age of workplace pension saving, but in reality, it's only ever been partial. And even the seemingly good pensions have not necessarily lived up to people's expectations, either Mm. because values have been eroded, schemes have been reduced, but, you know, also because of mis-selling or misadvising scandals as well. So, I mean, I often, uh, informally now, not as part of my research, but I often ask people who have been able to retire on good pensions if the pensions delivered what they had thought it would. Mm. And they almost always say no for a combination of these factors. But the thing about, you know, that you were kind of saying about millennials, a lot of the assumptions on which pensions are founded, like stable employment and economic growth, they're being increasingly challenged in the world that, you know, we're inheriting. And maybe those those sort of realisations are in part behind the dissatisfaction with pensions. Mm. But I guess I think a lot of people from other generations would agree with those things too. Mm. And actually, I know you you touched on scandals earlier. There's been a number of them over the past few years. So I think one of the famous ones was um, Sir Philip Green, who, when he sold BHS to avoid pension costs and later contributed Mm -hmm. 363 million to the pension pot. So do you think that's actively sort of affected the way people think about pension and the kind of trust they put or do not put in that system? Yeah, almost certainly. I mean, the BHS example was brought up by many of the participants in my research, even though it wasn't actually about the sort of pensions they had. Mm. I think people don't really understand the different types. So, you know, any scandal makes them feel a sense of distrust. And I, I really found a lot of people had a sense that pensions were something that they don't have control over and that lots of changes happen which directly affect their later lives without them having a way of inputting into that those changes. So any sort of scandal became part of a sense of disenfranchisement or disengagement from pensions generally. Mm, Yeah, that is just fundamentally changed the narrative, doesn't it? So looking at, God, this is just such a depressing interview. I'm very sorry about that. But um, so I think one of the key things affecting sort of young and youngish people is our inability to buy our own homes, especially in London, the Southeast and other major cities. So with fewer homeowners and more of us disillusioned with pensions, like is this teeing up for a crisis when our generation hits old age? To be honest, I think the answer is it depends. But I really get why this is a concern for so many people. The notion that home ownership provides an asset that can make up for kind of pension shortfalls isn't something that's been borne out, especially because assets in housing aren't always accessible in straightforward ways. So we get lots of income poor but asset rich people in later life living in houses but not having enough money to you know, do the things they need to do, for example. Mm. Having said that, a whole generation of people who don't own housing or have a pension raises huge questions about the assumption of private responsibility for later life provision. So not to sound like a broken record, but we need better systems that reflect the realities of what people are experiencing. No, that's yeah. true. And, yet, and one thing, and obviously, you know, as I, I think has been made clear already, this is not really my area of expertise, but I, I do kind of worry that actually, you know, part of the calculations behind pensions assumes that most people will be either straight out owning their own homes by the time they hit retirement mm-hmm. age or be living in social housing or etc. When it's that actually, it does kind of look like a lot of people will end up just still traditionally renting, you know, from the private sector when they hit retirement age. Not necessarily now, but in a few decades. And that really worries me. I think I remember when I thought about that, I was like, oh, well, I'm not going to sleep tonight. So that's fun. Um, yeah, but- I understand that. I mean, I, I think a lot of people have those same questions you know, the, the type of questions or things that you're worrying about, you're thinking about. I think a lot of people have those. But like, 
you know, they, they kind of think it's just them thinking it. So I guess like one of the things I'd like to do is encourage more people to talk about these sort of issues because we shouldn't just be sweeping this under the carpet, right? Well, yeah, I mean, again, I, I, I'm personally, I'm not British. I love talking about money. Like, it is genuinely one of my favourite topics. So <laughs> you're preaching to the choir here. Um, but so, and I think another thing is, um, and, and I know that's something you feel quite passionate about. So does gender play a role in pensions? Because I, you know, I, I get a feeling that women must be getting screwed one way or the other because we tend to. Am I right in this assumption? Unfortunately, I think you are. The gender pension gap is huge, bigger than the gender pay gap. And of course, that makes sense because pension contributions are normally calculated as a percentage of your pay. Mm. So every time a man earns 20% more than a woman, he's paying 20% more into his pension and getting 20% more from the employer and tax relief. And then that extra attracts investment gains. And, you know, the cumulative impact of that is enormous. Yay! But (laughs) it's not just about incomes because Mm. it's also about what's called, what's been called the heteropatriarchal assumptions of pensions, which basically means that pensions assume steady saving over the life course. Mm. So anyone who has to take breaks from work, whether that's to have children or to care for children or family members, which we know is predominantly women, Mm. they lose access to workplace pensions, missing really important years of accumulation. The cost of childcare is a massive issue because some women decide not to return to work because of it, therefore Mm. losing access. But also women who do return to work find childcare so expensive, they opt out of pension saving, seeing it as a kind of opportunity cost decision, Mm. which very rarely involves their partner. So men continue accumulating wealth as normal. And it's not clear to say that that wealth will be shared equally in the future. Mm. But to complicate it even further, (laughs) in my work, I also argue that these kind of gendered experiences shape how we do finance more generally. Mm. So what I mean by that is, constructions of gender and how we understand our kind of gendered role in society inform how we think about and ultimately do finance. So I found that men often justified taking on high risk investments by using the kind of tenets of masculinity like strength and control, Mm. whereas women often avoided financial investment because of expectations of femininity like gentleness and passivity. Now, I I don't mean to say all men were risky Mm when it came to finance and all women weren't. But for example, we found that women who were investing in quite sophisticated ways still used these sort of gendered notions to inform what they were doing. Hmm. So for systems like workplace pensions, where the involvement is really prescribed, it's not such a major concern. But when we look at personal finances, personal wealth more broadly, and as that becomes more pivotal to living well in later life, these patterns only serve to exacerbate the gender differentials in pension saving. So in the future, the gender wealth cap could be a lot worse unless we start addressing these issues and creating systems that suit people's real life experiences. God, I'm going to need such a strong drink after we finish recording this. Yeah, I I understand. I mean, I think about these things all the time and even I sometimes think, yeah, Mm. (laughs) this is... It it is really interesting, just a bummer to use the professional term. So we've been discussing pensions contributed to by workplaces, but do people trust state pensions? I have to say that following the Women Against State Pension Inequality campaign hasn't exactly filled me with confidence. Yeah, I mean, I think lots of people share those sort of feelings. I think a lot of people just dismiss that the state pension will exist by the time we get to later life. And that's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? If we're not fighting Mm. for it, it's not going to exist. But I also think it comes back to two things. Firstly, that 
people often think the pensions are not something they have control of or ownership Mm. over so they just disengage but secondly and my favorite point that the systems aren't really fit for purpose right yeah (laughs) so yeah Mm. Well, actually, on this point, thank you for leading me to the next question quite perfectly. So if you could address the policymakers on Whitehall in some sort of like magical scenario where they'd agree to do anything you say, what changes to pensions policy would you offer? Well, no pressure. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, the first thing is undoubtedly addressing the gender inequality in pension saving. It's so pervasive. It's so, you know, so strong and it's not going away as Mm. fast as it needs to. There's huge numbers of things that could be done in this remit, including the recently shelved proposals to reform childcare, you know, is desperately, desperately needed. And other countries do this a lot better than us. There's no reason why we don't have better gender equality in pension saving. Mm. Um, So, yeah, that's my immediate thing. But I mean, after that, I've probably got a very long list uh, (laughs) that might need a whole other podcast. Yeah, no, I'm enjoying you just kind of coming into the DWP and locking the doors and just being like, all right, yeah, just going to be here all night now. Um, And so on a more granular level, what's something workplaces could do to make sure that their employees make the most out of their pension contributions? Yeah, I think a lot of workplaces are doing, you know, a lot to try and encourage people to take up the pension schemes that they're offered. I mean, the big challenges that sometimes that falls on deaf ears for all the reasons we've been discussing already. But I mean, I think employers should be considering paying contributions, even if employees don't. I think having more flexibility around when and how much employees contribute would be a really big thing, especially for women with childcare responsibilities, for example. So some employers offer that sort of flexibility and some don't. Some employers kind of lock you in for the year. So at the start of the year, you decide how much you'll pay a month and that's it. Whereas others let you have a bit more flexibility. But, you know, there are employers who pay, pay a base level into your con- your pension above the minimum levels, even if you don't. And, you know, that's a really positive thing for, for people. Mm. No, that makes sense. And so just as, as a kind of conclusion and to look at the kind of other side, so if there's going back to that kind of magical scenario, so if there's one message you could beam to the nation, maybe just the nation's people under sort of 40, 40 ish, what would you tell them about their pensions? I think I would advise to make the most out of whatever they're entitled to. So max out whatever the employer offers, for example. But if you really don't feel like pensions, like they don't work for you, I guess don't judge yourself for that or just dismiss it. Mm. You're probably right to feel that way because there are so many issues with the system of pension saving and providing for later life. I don't want to say do nothing, you know, but I think so many people almost blame themselves for it. So I prefer us to blame the powers that reinforce the systems that don't really work for us and do something to change it. Mm. No, that's very good. Thank you. And I think that's a really good note to end it on as well. So thank you so much for joining us. This has been really, I mean, again, quite depressing, but really, really interesting. Well, it's always good to share, isn't it? So yeah, (laughs) thanks so much for having me. Listeners, if you enjoyed this podcast, you can back us on Patreon so we can keep making them. There's a link in the show notes or just search Bunker Patreon Podcast. For as little as £3 a month, you'll get access to episodes early and without adverts, as well as exclusive merchandise offers. This is Marie LeConte. Thanks for joining me in the bunker. The Bunker Daily was written and presented by Marie Leconte. The producers were Alex Reese and Jack Gerbertson, with assistant production from Kasia Tomashevich. The lead producer was Jacob Jarvis, with audio production from me, Jade Bailey. The group editor, Sandy Harrison, with music from Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.